and welcome to the first episode of the uh, Guidehouse Transportation Insights. Uh, this is a little podcast that we're putting together, the Guidehouse Insights uh, Transportation Analyst Team, uh, taking a look at some of the top stories of the past couple of weeks, uh, roundtable discussion with our team. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, Principal Analyst here at Guidehouse Insights. Uh, I cover e-mobility ecosystems and automated vehicles. Um, and I'll hand it. We'll go around the the table here, the virtual table, to let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, Scott, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Scott Shepard, and I, I lead our uh, uh, fleet decarbonization <laughs> and vehicle charging research services. Um, and happy to be here. Saji. Hi, I'm I'm Saji Avenata. I'm a, a senior research analyst uh, in Guidehouse Insights, uh, based in London. Um, and um, yeah, I support the vehicles team um, on, on all uh, topics related to transportation, um, including vehicle technologies, e-mobility, and um, yeah, urban mobility. Ryan? Hi, everyone. Ryan Citron. I'm a senior research analyst here at Guidehouse. I lead our micro-mobility and electric vehicles research service. And Christian? Hi, my name is uh, Christian Albertson. I'm a senior research analyst, and I'm looking at the aviation innovations here at Guidehouse. And Christian, let's start with you. What, uh, what's been the, the big story in the last couple of weeks in your area? Well, one of the, the interesting ones, I, I attended a uh, uh, FAA clean symposium yesterday. Um, what they're looking at now is the uh, sustainable aviation fuels and the future for these in the, in the United States. And right now, the United States produces about 10 million gallons of uh, the SAF, is what it's called, every year. And our goal originally was 2 billion gallons per year by 2030. And that has just been increased to 3 billion gallons uh, to, uh, by 2030, with a total of 32 billion gallons per year by 2050. Um which is a long way from the 10 million gallons we're actually looking at right now. Um, according to the Department of Energy, though, in uh, earlier this year, they said that we do have enough resources to create the 32 billion gallons that are, would be used every year. We just don't have the proper facilities to make that much sustainable aviation fuel. So it's going to take a, a significant investment by both the government and private entities to get to that uh, 32 billion gallons a year. Um, that's what just aircraft in the United States would use on a yearly basis. So that doesn't include what would need to be for the rest of the world, which would probably put us closer to about 65 to 70 billion gallons a year when you look at worldwide. So when, when you say we've got enough resources, you're talking about the, the, the raw materials, the feedstocks for the, for the SAF, right? That's what the Department of Energy is claiming. They're saying that we've got enough carbon-based resources that we could actually make all $32 billion per year. We just don't have the facilities to do it. And reading into it, they don't state where the, those sources are coming from. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more research into that, see if we can find that. But there's, that's a big jump saying, you know, right now we're low on resources and, and that only gets us to the 10 million and them saying, we, yeah, we've got enough resources to do $32 billion or a billion gallons worth. So 
And, and what, what sorts of feedstocks are those that, that are being used to produce sap? Uh, the main one is corn that they're okay. using right now. You can use corn. You can use um, a few other feedstocks. I don't remember the exact, but corn is the main one. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm curious to where they're getting the rest of the, the feedstocks. Um, as long as it's carbon-based, I guess, um, we, you know, we can recycle. There's things that we can recycle to get it as well. Um, but that's a huge jump. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Go from 10 million to 32 billion in, in such a short time. Yeah. It, it, it sort of sounds like, um, they're talking about the development of, um, of a, of a type of processing technology that has been around for a while. We've been tracking the market, um, for different, uh, SAF pathways, so HVO and, and HEFA, uh, as well as uh, SAF through Fisher Troughs, which um, what we have uh, sort of seen is that it's likely that once Fisher Troughs, which I can never pronounce correctly, or FT, comes along, it's going to expand significantly the capacity for uh, a variety of carbon-based residues that are, um, uh, of which there's a high capacity of resource for. Uh, so once that technology comes along and is able to uh, be developed, it opens up a, a significant, a, a, a massive resource base that has been of yet untapped. Um, and with the other processes like uh, using ethanol through alcohol to jet or, um, or the development of uh, renewable diesel through HVO and HEFA as it's applied to aviation, there are those capacity constraints that have been limiting for the market. So it, it kind of sounds like they're banking on uh, um, the, the resource base being opened up through FT. Now, another thing that's interesting, though, on this, this 32 billion gallons they're looking at by 2050, uh, right now we're only um, total jet A used in the United States every year is 26 billion. So this this is showing a growth up to the 32 billion. But this is also showing a 100 percent SAF burn on these aircraft, not the 50 50 blend that they're approved at right now. So this is this is. Uh, 100% SAF, 32 billion gallons, um, which would get rid of the need for that 26 billion gallons of uh, traditional Jet A as well. Is there a, um, uh, a technology change that's occurring within the engines to enable 100% rather than 50%, or is it a, a change in the fuel chemistry? It, it's it's a change in the fuel. Uh, Rolls-Royce last uh, couple weeks... Uh, just flew an aircraft using 100% SAF in one of the engines. They work perfectly. The air, they, they've been designed to run on 100% SAF for quite a while. It's just the FAA has only approved a 50% blend on it. Uh, I suspect that unlike um, piston engines used in, in ground vehicles, um, it, 
jet engines are not going to have, they don't have some of the issues that we've had in the past with using biofuels in piston engines because of the fact that uh, the fuel is, <clears throat> is also used as a lubricant in those kinds of engines. Uh, whereas it's not, I don't think that's really the case in jet engines, is it? No, it's not. It's uh, um, Sometimes they'll use the fuel for cooling. Uh-huh. But it's it's just the way they wrap the the fuel around the engine itself to cool the exterior of the engine and through the, the fuel lines, um, but they won't use it for lubricating and, and things like that. I mean, you're looking at a a jet engine when it's finished building technically only has one or two moving parts. You know, some of them if you have a, a three shaft engine, it has three moving parts. Uh, so there's not a lot of lubrication that's done um, with the fuel. Period. So it's just basically um, squirted into the combustion chamber and ignited. So you don't have to worry about those those issues that you would have with a piston engine. Okay. All right. Anything else on uh, on the aviation front? Um, I had an interesting one that was actually um, kind of kind of weird that that we may want to start looking into when it comes to your drones. Uh, this was a July 2020 incident that was just released today. Um, there was a, a, an attempted attack on a uh, uh, electrical station in Pennsylvania using a drone. Uh, the drone had had all of its camera removed. It had the uh, uh, memory stick removed and had all of the uh, serial numbers and and uh, everything removed from it because they did not want to be caught. They still have not been caught, but what it did have on it was a, um, they had, um, nylon rope coming down. And at the end of the nylon rope, it was a loop. The the end of the loop was copper, was a copper cable that ran across. And what they were trying to do was get into the power station and hit some of the transformers that would, would, uh, short out the transformers and take down the power grid. So this brings up the, the issue of security around uh, power, power stations, power grid, uh, transformers, and everything, um, because this was a maybe $150 drone that they were using. They just, and it looked like they had been flying it and practicing with it before because the drone had been quite used is what they said in the report. So this is just a, a, a heads up thing we, thing we may need to start looking at is security when it comes to the drone usage um, because this would have taken down, they didn't say the exact spot. They said it would have taken down thousands of people off the grid instantly. If, if the, this would have been a successful attack. Sounds like we need to uh, encourage some uh, hawks and eagles to start nesting around uh, power stations. Yes. They've, <laughs> they've got a history of those things attacking drones in flight uh, to protect their nests. So yeah. um, something like that. Um, that's, it's, it's a, it seems like a fairly um, trivial type of attack, but obviously the consequences be very, very serious. And uh, it would, it would be a major problem if something like this were done on any kind of significant scale. Well, again, it, it this was in 2020, this could have been a practice Mm-hmm. Type, hey, if we can take down a small one, what would we need to do to take down a larger power station and take down a larger portion of the grid? So, something uh, needs to be Chris, done on Chris, the security no, side. Chris, I have a quick question on that. Um, 
for drones of that class, um, is there not a requirement for them to be registered? Yes. It's a, well, it's a hobby drone. It's, it has the capabilities, everything it needed. It should have been registered. However, all of the registration marks were removed. So they took everything off. They went through and they took off every serial number they could find. They did, uh, you know, took out the camera, the memory stick. So there's no way they can trace it back to where, to, to the whoever bought it. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of utilities, to my understanding, are, are using drones already to, to monitor their assets and things like that. So it'd be interesting to see if this keeps happening. Will, will they get their drones to monitor other drones? Better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's the other day we were out driving. There was uh, the electric company here was using a drone to inspect the uh, electric poles and the and the mm-hmm. connections and the transformers up on top of the poles, and they were just going from pole to pole and doing a visual inspection by the drone instead of by helicopter or by truck. All right. Ryan, you're up. Sounds good. All right. So latest news from the uh, light electric vehicle industry. Um, Pretty interesting uh, partnership announced in the last couple of weeks. Uh, So the major oil company BP partnered with Piaggio, who's the largest two-wheeler manufacturer in Europe. And they signed a memorandum of understanding to develop charging stations and swappable battery technology for electric two and three-wheelers in Asia and in Europe. So the initial focus of the cooperation is on the Indian market, where these two and three wheelers are, are known to be particularly in high demand. And other possible markets that have been talked about include Indonesia, uh, China, Vietnam, and a variety of countries in Europe. Uh, just for a bit of background, um, as, as some of you may already know, that BP, while they are famous for being an oil and gas company, uh, they do have plans to become a net zero business by 2050. Uh, and they have plans to have more than 70,000 public charging points by 2030. Uh, so it's interesting to see that they're now entering the, the two and three wheeler markets. And, and the statement from the company talked about this as part of their uh, overall shift to, to offering a mobility revolution and, and needing to be in all aspects of that mobility uh, revolution, no matter how many wheels the vehicle has. And I was talking about the modes of transport in Asia, just tend to be more uh, focused on that uh, anyway. Um, and, and another interesting point about the partnership, so in addition to offering charging, and it sounds like mostly battery swapping stations, uh, BP and Piaggio are looking to offer recycling services for, for the batteries of the EVs, uh, as well as offer some of their uh, developed business models, such as batteries as service leasing, uh, vehicle as a service leasing, as well as maintenance and repair services for the two and three wheel vehicles. Um, so another, another kind of interesting uh, twist on it. Um, and while investing in charging infrastructure is certainly becoming more common for oil companies, and, and BP is already doing this with uh, BP Charge Master and uh, Aero Pulse, is a believe the name of the company, uh, the world of battery swapping is pretty new uh, for the company. Thus far, they just have a small pilot uh, through its German subsidiary, uh, Aero, um, in Berlin, uh, but it's very small. Uh, so interesting to see them jumping into this. And, you know, the, the news brings up a lot of questions for, for me. It's, you know, how many swapping stations and charging stations they're going to be doing. Are they going to be releasing new vehicle types that presumably Piaggio will be manufacturing, specifically designed for the Indian market since most of their products are, are designed for, for, for Europe, such as the electric Vespas and things like that. 
Uh, also be interesting to see if other oil companies kind of follow suit here and see if having swap stations at gas stations uh, becomes more of a trend. Um, another interesting announcement that relates to this that, that happened, uh, I believe it was last week, um, is that GoGrow announced a partnership with a company called Gojek, which is the largest on-demand platform in Indonesia. And they have millions of delivery drivers uh, as part of the platform. And the swapping stations in Indonesia are going to be located at uh, Pertamina gas stations. And Pertamina is the largest gas station chain in Indonesia and owned by the government. So certainly some momentum behind the trend of putting battery swapping at, at gas stations. And I think that, you know, that might be because it's more similar to the gas refueling experience. It's you know, very quick. Um, whereas charging, you know, a lot of gas stations, there's just like a convenience store and that's it. So if you're going to sit there charging for 30 plus minutes, there's not necessarily a lot of entertainment or, or things to keep you busy. So uh, it could be a sign of an interesting trend and uh, we'll see, we'll see where the partnership goes. So um, obviously the, the swapping, uh, the, the business of battery swapping for light two wheelers like this is quite a bit different from the potential for swapping uh, for larger EVs, you know, pat, you know, cars and, and trucks and vans um, is because the, the, uh, the capital costs of these smaller batteries and, and the footprint required for the swap stations is obviously a lot smaller. Um, does, do you think it makes sense uh, to have, you know, multiple proprietary uh, charging networks, you know, as opposed to, you know, like with traditional fueling infrastructure, you know, you can fuel any vehicle from any uh, fueling station, but, um, you know, with the, the battery formats, you know, for larger vehicles being, you know, tending to be proprietary for anybody to have a swapping network that covers multiple vehicle types, they would have to stock a lot of different kinds of batteries. Uh, but because of the small size of the batteries on these, on these two wheelers, uh, does that, does that business make sense in that way? I think it's still ideal to have one battery standard. So you're, you're basically asking if there is like two different companies offering different battery types in one country or city, would that make sense? Would that work? Is that yeah. And I mean, and given the, the size of these swap stations, you know, it seems like it could be possible to have, you know, maybe two, three, or even four of these, you know, at a gas station, uh, you know, they don't have a very large physical footprint. Yeah, no, it's certainly a lot more possible and, and would be easier for the consumer to navigate compared to, to the market for cars and trucks. Uh, I still think ideally you'd want it to be one standard similar to, to a gas refueling experience. So just don't have to navigate between the two. And, and I think it's pretty unrealistic that, you know, every gas station would have two or three of the exact same types that'd be spread out for all different locations and make it kind of more complicated. I think where we've seen battery swapping work the best, it has been more of a standard. So Taiwan is the, is kind of the gold standard for swapping and, and, and GoGo there, they have uh, six different manufacturers on their platform, all using the same batteries. And it's, it's a lot easier, it seems like, in the two-wheeler industry to get other manufacturers to develop vehicles that work on the same uh, battery swapping uh, technology that, that can use uh, the same powertrain. So I think ideally you still want it um, connected up to the same platform, but there's no reason why um, you couldn't have two different standards and just have lots of different stations placed throughout for, for a different provider. Has Gogoro given any indication of a willingness to potentially license their battery format or their, their swapping technology to enable others to come in and, and compete? 
Well, so far, their approach has really been to um, supply that technology kind of as, as a platform play, and they get um, a certain portion of the subscription fees that, that users will pay to use the Swapper network. And so far, for their expansion plans in China and India, they're really having big uh, OEMs manufacture the vehicles, not themselves. So they already are kind of, I'd say, sort of licensing their, their technology and it's placed on their powertrain and then they're swapping uh, technology. And their kind of approach seems to be get the get the big guys to, to produce all the vehicles and we'll supply the battery swapping technical know-how and technology. Okay. Scott, I think you might be on mute. It looks like you're talking. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um yeah, as as you mentioned, sort of uh, Gogoro in, in Taiwan uh, has become the standard. Um, do you see with expansion of Gogoro into India and into China and, and other markets that there are other competitors who might also be in a position to become the standard or what what would be the shake out there? Do you see that like... Um, competitive system of of multiple formats of battery swapping existing for for a long period or at some point do you think there's going to be this sort of regional breakup of of standards based around early uh, entrance in the market yeah it looks like it's shaping up that there's multiple standards going on in both those countries so in china there's already a few other pretty large players uh namely a motor is the main one that does swapping but that Motor is very focused on the market for delivery drivers, so they don't really sell vehicles to consumers and then swapping. So it's just swapping for delivery drivers, basically. So Gogoro is a bit different that they're going after that consumer market, I would say. And then in India, you have a lot of companies doing swapping, especially around the electric rickshaw market, since those vehicles are just used so regularly for for taxiing and, and things like that. So. Um, there's certainly, you know, I think there's there's other companies, major companies looking to get involved in, in the market in India. Some of the major motorcycle manufacturers are, are looking to get in there. Um, so I think we'll see see a mix. But right now, GoGro seems to have a pretty good head start on the market for, for consumer vehicles. All right. Anything else on uh, the micromobility front? No, I think so. Thanks, guys, for the for the questions. All right, Saji. Yeah. Hi. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned um, today, I'd like to just talk a, a little bit about um, Baidu's recent um, unveiling of um, some of their uh, future uh, robot taxi fleet. Um, so, um, overall, I think um, yeah, Baidu's aim is to, um, or, or they've, they've shared their plans to deploy around three thousand robot taxis. Um, over the next few years, um, and so they, they recently um, unveiled um, three of the vehicles that they, they, they plan to deploy as robot taxis. Um, they've been working with a with, with a few Chinese um, uh, manufacturers to to uh, to provide the vehicles. Um, one of them, um, they they'd actually uh, announced this partnership um, earlier this year is is with a, a brand called um, ArcFox, who are um, part of. Uh, uh, the Beijing uh, electric uh, vehicle company. Um, it seems at the moment that the, the, the rest of their lineup at the moment is predominantly high-performance uh, vehicles, but um, they've also got um, um, a mid-sized crossover, which the electric crossover, which they uh, have uh, sh- uh, 
displayed as as being um, used as a future robo taxi. Um, and a couple of the other manufacturers are um, there's one called WM. So they've got a, a brand called the Welt Weltmeister uh, W6. So again, that's another mid-size crossover um, electric, of course. Um, and also an, another brand which is called um, Ion. Uh, so they've they've also got a, a crossover called the, um, the LX, uh, and they're, they're part of it. The, the large OEM called GAC. So um, so by do you're working yeah with with a few different uh, manufacturers, and they've all got they all have very similar uh, vehicles. So they're all, as I said, medium size electric crossover vehicles. Um, and one, one, I think one of the key selling points that um, Baidu has announced is that um, they'll be very cost competitive compared to other uh, equivalent uh, level four um, automated vehicles, um, at least at least according to Baidu. So they have um, stated the production cost around $75,000 for, for one of these vehicles, um, which is um, apparently about a third of, of the, the, the price of a typical um, level four automated vehicle. Um, one of the other things which they um, announced is um, they developed um, or they've refined their remote operation uh, functionality. So um, you know, uh, by, by using 5G connectivity, um, uh, remotely based operators can take control of the vehicle um, in, in difficult situations or, or emergencies. Um, and also um, in, in other applications of the robot taxis, for example, or, or, or automated vehicles generally, um, maybe maybe for a long distance trucking um, and and so on. Um, additionally, it, uh, it's it's very well integrated with uh, uh, V2X technologies in China, um, which is um, yeah a, a fundamental technology which is is being developed uh, in in China for for automated vehicles. So um, yeah, so. I, th- I thought it was quite interesting um, to, to see that uh, there's now a, a range of vehicle offerings uh, provided by Do by by Do, um, and um, they are seemingly quite serious in achieving their um, their plans of de- of, of, of deploying uh, thousands of uh, commercially operating uh, rogue taxis in the next few years. Um, at the moment, obviously they're, they're mainly operating pilots, but they do have some paid um, uh, paid services which they're providing to customers at the moment. So, um, so yeah, so that, that, that's it from, uh, from me. Yeah. But by, by, is an interesting company, you know, they're very much, uh, you know, they start off as a Chinese search engine, a competitor to Google, and they are in many ways analogous to Google, uh, including their development of automated driving technology. And they're working working with quite a few different OEMs, both Chinese domestic brands as well as uh, some uh, non-Chinese companies, uh, including Ford, uh, even though Ford has their own effort uh, in North America with, uh, with Argo, uh, which they ha- own, have an ownership stake in. Um, for the Chinese market, they are working with Baidu uh, because of some of the restrictions in that market on data gathering and, and so on. Um, and by you mentioned Vita X, which I thought you know is interesting. You know, quite a few of the Chinese AV companies uh, have incorporated Vita X as a key component of their systems, and that's something that hasn't really happened in North America yet uh, to any significant degree. There's there's some something starting to happen now with Argo and with Motional using Vita X, but the ability for the vehicles to communicate with infrastructure and with each other 
to help indicate uh, their intent, I think is, is something that uh, is, is important to, for making these vehicles safer and more robust. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I, I think um, that's probably the advantage of the, of the Chinese uh, companies which are developing these technologies, that so they have a bit more of a, a unified um, uh, approach um, in adopting uh, V2X from the start and um, ensuring that their, their vehicles are compatible with it, with, it, with the standards of the other um, OEMs there. Now, quick question. Are, are these starting with a, a, a safety driver or are they just going full robo-taxi to be you know, controlled by the, the uh, vehicle itself? So um, at the moment, they, they do have um, pilots with, with robo-taxis um, where there's a safety, safety driver in the vehicle. They have, um, they've had a few, I, I believe a small proportion um, without drivers, but I, I, I understand that they're still quite limited um, in, in, in terms of being fully driverless. But um, I think that uh, Baidu's expectation is that, um, you know, once, once they've, they've got a lot of the learnings um, from their existing pilots um, from completely driverless operation, they'll be, I, I guess, ideally looking to ensure that their, um, their, their fleet of level four robot taxis will be driverless. Yeah, in, in China, the, the rules for testing and deployment of automated vehicles are quite different than they are in, in the U.S. They, I mean, for example, to get a permit to test on public roads, um, the companies developing the, the system actually have to pass, essentially pass a driver's test. Um, and there's multiple tiers mm-hmm. of the, the driving evaluation and based on what level of capability they can demonstrate they get permits to test in certain areas uh, or, you know, there's restrictions on the permit uh, where, where they're allowed to test. Uh, and uh, several companies, including Baidu are doing some public road testing with vehicles without safety operators in them. But so far for the pilots, uh, the robo taxi pilots, they are still using safety operators in the vehicles. All right. Anything else, Saji? All right, Scott, your turn. All right. Thanks, Sam. So um, <clears throat> today I'd like to uh, um, just provide an update on, you know, one of the biggest automakers on the global stage um, has been fairly hesitant when it comes to EVs. But, um, but well, that company, Toyota, uh has not too long ago announced that they were going to uh, commit to producing 15 new EV models by 2025, um, which is a, a pretty big statement from one of the biggest uh, global automakers. And um, uh, you know, recently they uh, they provided details on their first model in that regard, uh, which is the BZ for Beyond Zero 4X. Now the um, the BZ4X uh, is was developed in partnership with Subaru. They're using the same platform, and there are a, a number of elements to to this debut that are are interesting and important. But the uh, but the ones I want to focus on are primarily the the energy specifications um, or the energy capabilities and and innovations that Toyota is doing here. So um, one of them uh, is. Uh, is on rooftop solar, uh, which we've seen 
a number of different EV makers do interesting things with pro, uh, placing solar panels on the roofs uh, of their vehicles, um, going all the way back to the Fisker Karma. Um, and what Toyota is doing here is, is not necessarily anything um, uh, so magnificent um, as compared to some of the more recent announcements, like those from Sonos, which is an EV startup in Germany, and uh, Aptera, which is a um, which is uh, also an EV startup, a kind of a perpetual startup. They've been around for a while, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, both of these companies using solar in a very significant way to power vehicle miles. Uh, Toyota's uh, panel, they say, can produce over a thousand miles. I think it's over. They say over one thousand one hundred miles in a year. Um, uh, what what I, what we've seen is that that really is not going to work in most places, except for where there's a lot of sunlight, and of course, if you're parking it outside, of course. Um, but that is uh, a pretty significant chunk of miles if that's what you're uh, if if that's a location you are in. It also presents an an interesting opportunity to, of course, uh, own uh, an EV and not necessarily have to uh, plug in that EV every time you come home. So it opens up the the audience for EV owners a little bit, uh, and it's an encouraging sign for the industry. Another um, aspect of of the EV, which uh, I think is a little more interesting, is the inclusion of bidirectional charging. Um, so we've started to see more and more automakers in, uh, integrating bidirectional charging capabilities into their EVs. Uh, Ford is doing that with the F one fifty Lucid. Um, another EV startup and Rivian, another EV startup, both integrating bidirectional charging for, for to enable a variety of different capabilities that you can create with bidirectionality. Uh, Toyota has announced that they're doing that with this vehicle as well. That's not necessarily unheard of, especially for a Japanese automaker. Nissan was, was the first automaker to really make this uh, capability, um, but they initially only made that for vehicles deployed to Japan. Later, they made that capability for vehicles deployed elsewhere, but only on a case-by-case basis. Uh, it's unclear whether that's going to be the case here with Toyota's uh, BZ4X. But uh, the general trend with multiple automakers now uh, deploying this capability suggests that it's more likely that Toyota would also adopt a similar strategy. Now, the last energy component, or well, there's a couple more, but one of the last energy components I find um, interesting is that they are planning to deploy the vehicle with radiant floor heating, which is uh, which is a first, uh, especially in the EV industry. Um, there have been a lot of developments around use of heat pumps. Now, the importance of, of, of heat pumps specifically is to uh, increase uh, energy efficiency for in-cabin air heating and, and air conditioning. Um, and, and that's, that's a boost, uh, for EVs because that, uh, the conventional, uh, cabin air systems are, are very in energy inefficient and that takes away from the range, so on and so forth. Uh, so the way automakers have tackled that is, uh, in seat heating, um, and heat pumps, um, here Toyota is introducing the concept of, of radiant floor heating, um, and there have been studies that, that suggest that if you integrate 
the radiant heating systems into uh, the vehicle cabin infrastructure more generally. You can see, uh, you know, up to a 20% improvement and that that's more about, you know, the, the structure and the frame of the vehicle. So, uh, you know, we would, we would expect that the, um, the radiant floor system would not achieve such energy efficiency gains, but uh, it would likely be significant. Um, <clears throat> besides that, uh, they also, you know, the more headline catching item was the, uh, the, the battery durability headline, which is that they said that over the course of 10 years, um, they expect that their batteries retain, uh, 90% of their energy, um, which is, which is a pretty big leap. Typically we've seen that the expectations here are around, 70 to 80 percent uh, or lower so 90 percent is, is a pretty big jump um, and uh, and is overall encouraging for for the industry outside of those uh, bullets the the offering that Toyota is presenting has uh, relatively standard features so uh, a range of about you know on the EPA cycle it's probably in the neighborhood of 260 to 280 it's rated at 310 for WLTC, uh, and they're uh, looking at about 150 kilowatts of, of charging capacity, which puts it in the realm of a 400 volt architecture. Um, and the kilowatt, uh, the the battery pack size is about 70, is just over 70 kilowatt hours. So, in that regard, the the vehicle is impressive, but it's the it's the things that Toyota has done around it that that I think are going to be interesting for the EV industry going forward. Has Toyota given any indication of uh, what the power output of the bi-directional capability will be? Uh, you know, is it going to be more in, along the lines of what Hyundai is doing with their vehicle-to-load system, where it's about one and a half kilowatts, or something more like a, a whole home backup system like the F one fifty Lightning, which will put out up to nine point six kilowatts? Yeah. Um, not, they haven't provided any specific details in that regard, but they have provided some insights around what they expect the application to be used for, which might be indicative. And, um, in that regard, uh, you know, I would say it's, it's, it sounds like it's more than the, the Hyundai system and that they're talking about, you know, using this technology for, for the suite of different vehicle to X, uh, or vehicle to load, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, uh, use cases. So that includes backing up homes. Um, but it's, but it's, uh, unclear as to exactly what capacity they'll, they'll look at for that. Okay. And, uh, with regard to the solar aspect, um, sorry if I missed this, is that expected to be standard on the vehicle or is that an add on option? And if so, how much is it to add on the solar capability? Yeah, so pricing details uh, I, I haven't seen yet. Um, it is it would be an add-on feature, so that would likely be you know in, in the premium uh, mm. in the premium vehicle. Um, so you know at the end of the day, with the solar roof, I don't think um, it's going to be really deployed in a lot of situations where where that energy is is going towards or where the solar is actually generating a lot of energy, um, just because you know being in the premium segment. You'd assume the the vehicle is 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 typically parked in a situation that that might not uh, present a great solar generation opportunity. Do you see solar and EVs sort of 
a timeline for when that might make more sense. I mean, it, it seems like at this point, the, the cost of adding the solar isn't really worth it for how few extra miles you'll get based on just a lot of times people are parked in garages and things like that. And it might not be that sunny. So do you see that it'll ever kind of take off and be economical and make sense or, or not anytime soon? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, it, I, I don't see it ever being... Um, a feature on all EVs. Um, yeah, I see it more as being uh, an interest for for the tech interested consumers. Um, likely having a place in, in in some use cases, but you know, it's it's really uh, more of a more of an, a niche technology than it is a, a practical technology. Um, so I, I would say it's. It's something that's always going to carry with it a bit of a premium, um, and it's going to have a market. It's not going to be uh, a huge market. Percentage of EV owners that park in their garage is probably pretty high at this point, considering the use of home charging. Yeah, yeah. And by the yeah. time, theoretically, that uh, using a technology like solar and, and panels to generate electricity would be cost competitive, theoretically, we would expect that there's also an infrastructure solution out there that has made um, uh, the energy uh, demands of somebody who parks on the street uh, sufficient to not need the solar panels themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the big problem with solar is that you know the photovoltaic panels kind of need to be pointed towards the sun. You need a fairly high angle or you know close to perpendicular angle of incidence of the, the sun to the panel. Um, and on a vehicle, most of the time that panel, if it's on the roof is not really facing the right direction to get, you know, when, okay. once you get away from that perpendicular angle of incidence, your solar generation generating capability drops off pretty dramatically. And so that's usually not the case for the roof of a vehicle. Um, my own experience, um, trying out some vehicles that have had optional solar panels like the Hyundai Sonata hybrid, uh, you know, parked outside, um, you know, in the direct sunlight in my, in my driveway for a full day, it charged the, the hybrid battery, uh, I think less than one kilowatt hour, um, you know, which is good for about a mile and a half, you know, of electric <laughs> driving, you know, if that basically yeah. useful, but well, I think, I think where it, where it is more useful, you know, is, Scott, you mentioned, you know, the inefficiency of the climate control systems in EVs. And, you know, if you've got a vehicle that is parked out in the sun, um, you know, using a solar panel, you know, even if it's a smaller solar panel to, for example, drive the ventilation system in the car while it's parked without drawing on the battery, um, that can reduce the thermal load in the cabin of the car so that when you get in, instead of, you know, sitting in, being sitting in the sun and being over 100 degrees in the cabin, you know, you might be able to get it down to 80 or 85 degrees. And now you don't have to use the air conditioning as much, you know, as an example. So you're reducing the load that's going to be coming off the battery when you get in the car. It's going to be closer to a comfortable temperature. That's the sort of use case, I think, where a solar, a solar roof on a car makes sense. Yeah, and an additional to that use case, um, there's also interest in electrifying reefer trucks 
which, um, you know, those are typically powered or the refrigeration units are typically powered by diesel. And there's a movement to, to electrify those refrigeration units. And those are typically on a trailer. And so, you know, one of the things is you can, of course, charge those up at a, at a fleet depot or using a, a shore power sort of uh, charging station along your route. But another option is to use uh, uh, basically solar panels that would lie on top of the truck trailer uh, to, to support the energy demands of, of that refrigeration unit. You get a lot more surface area there. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's where we've seen, you know, companies like Sonos, who is, you know, uh, kind of creating this hype vehicle that is almost entirely solar powered, um, also put their footprint in is the development of solar to, to service those reefer truck and freight uh, demands for air conditioning. All right. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the the BZ4X is supposed to be going to production middle of 2022. And I think we'll probably, over the next several months, we'll be hearing a lot more about it. In fact, I think um, in a couple of weeks, just before the LA Auto Show, uh, Toyota is holding an electrification event in California. Uh, and I think they'll be revealing some more information about, particularly about the North American version of the BZ4X. Uh, and I think we'll also be hearing more from, from Subaru in the not too distant future about their version, which is uh, it's basically the same vehicle badged as the uh, Solterra that will also be coming out next year. I, I Scott, a quick, quick question on, on, on that uh, topic. Um, do you think there was any particular factor which had, uh, I guess, convinced uh, Toyota to put EVs into their, their cycle plan or, or they, they just suddenly felt that uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're getting left behind by other OEMs? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a hard one to, to answer. I think, um, you know, strategically Toyota has, has been well positioned with, with hybrids. Um, and, uh, it's hard to ignore market data on EVs, uh, just, you know, in 2021, it's, it's the first year that, uh, fully electric vehicles will outsell hybrids on the global stage. Uh, last year, fully electric vehicles came close. Um, this year it's, it's, it's going to happen if, uh, it, it might already be that EVs have, have outsold hybrids. Hybrids have had a good year. Sales are up 30% or so. Um, but, uh, yeah, EVs are, are having a much better year. Um, and that, that trend is likely to continue. So I think, um, you know, uh, for, for Toyota, they made this decision quite a while ago. Um, it's not, uh, it's not something uh, they made lightly. Um, I think, if anything, they are trying to shift the narrative um, that they are part of the transition, uh, but they are a little bit behind. Um, this is their first EV, and most other major automakers have had an e- a dedicated EV platform on the road for a while. So I think it's a combination of, of trying, to, uh, trying to integrate with where the market's at. Yeah, I think regulatory mandates in California and Europe and elsewhere are also driving this. You know, Toyota's had some decent success with the the Rav Four Prime and the the Prius Prime, their plug-in hybrids, but that only takes you so far. At some point, you know, you've also got to have some some battery EVs. All right. 
and I will wrap it up with uh, some news from Manhattan. Um, yesterday, uh, as we record this, uh, Waymo announced that they are they have begun testing um, their uh, automated vehicles in Manhattan. Um, they have put in a small fleet of their Chrysler Pacifica hybrids that are uh, that that's kind of the, their their leading uh, vehicles in there that they're using to map the area. So their initial testing and service area stretches from the southern perimeter of Central Park in, in Midtown down into lower Manhattan and, and pretty much on the, the west side of the island. And based on the map that they published, it also goes through uh, um, one of the uh, the tunnels uh, into New Jersey. So presumably their depot for their vehicles is going to be on the New Jersey side of the uh, Hudson River. Uh, but they're starting off, uh, they'll probably be spending the next uh, few weeks mapping the area and then starting to deploy the Pacifica hybrids and also some of their Jaguar I-PACES uh, into the city. And it, this is, Waymo becomes the second company to start testing uh, level four AVs in New York. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, Mobileye deployed some of their vehicles there, and they've been they've been doing testing in the city. Uh, initially, uh, Cruz had announced way back in 2018 that they were going to start testing in Manhattan, but that never happened. Uh, they never got the uh, the permits required, and and they they just I think weren't far enough along in their development to uh, feel like they could they, they could start testing there. Uh, but um, now we've got Mobileye and Waymo in New York. And this will be interesting because in New York, you know, especially Manhattan is an area where a lot of the residents don't drive. Uh, they rely on public transit, particularly the subways and on taxis. Uh, and then over the last several years, increasingly on ride hailing, uh, which of course has, has caused some challenges for congestion in Manhattan. Uh, but this, uh, you know, the, if, if and when Waymo and Mobileye and other companies can start deploying AVs, that will give another option to people trying to get around the city, uh, which is very congested. And it's, this is a, a very challenging environment for AVs to operate in because uh, so you've got a lot of traffic, a lot of very narrow streets, um, especially the uh, uh, the east-west uh, streets tend to be very narrow. There's not a lot of room to maneuver. Uh, and, uh, the, the, the traffic they have to deal with, you know, whether it's the human taxi drivers, the ride hail vehicles, buses, the delivery trucks, a lot of delivery trucks, uh, and now increasingly, uh, micro mobility, uh, bicycles and, and scooters and so on that, you know, have been more recently introduced into the city. It's going to be fascinating to watch how well these vehicles perform, uh, in the city. And, uh, I think I'll have to, uh, uh, schedule a visit to uh, Manhattan in the not too distant future and, and see if I can get a ride in uh, Mobilize uh, and Waymo's vehicles and see how they perform uh, in that environment. I know, I know it's an area that uh, uh, I, I think I've only ever driven in Manhattan a couple of times uh, and it was not a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, so be curious to see how these do, but uh, you know, this is a further expansion for Waymo. Uh, they, you know, they were one of the first to launch a commercial robo taxi service in uh, Arizona in Chandler, Arizona, which is a much more suburban 
much more wide open kind of environment. Uh, and this past year and a half in particular, they've been doing a lot of testing in San Francisco and um, the, both uh, Waymo and Cruise have received permits to do uh, driverless uh, testing in San Francisco. And they've, they've been doing that. And they've also received permits to launch driverless uh, ride hailing. There, there's a two-stage process in California. They need a, a permit from the California Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, and <clears throat> then uh, they also need a separate permit from the California Public Utilities Commission. And those have to be done in sequence. They can't be done at the same time. So both Waymo and Cruz have the, the DMV permits but they're still waiting on the PUC permits, um, which is a several month process. Um, and I expect that uh, both of those companies will probably get those permits sometime in most likely in the first quarter of 2022. And at that point, we'll see them begin to launch at least some limited uh, commercial services, um, ride hailing services in uh, the city of San Francisco and um, perhaps, you know, Waymo, you know, maybe by the, the end of 2022 or in, maybe in 2023, Waymo will be ready to start doing that in, uh, in New York as well, which has the potential to be a very significant market. It's, it's a kind of environment where I think there's going to be a lot of interest from people getting around the city in using that sort of service. Um, so, uh, it'll, it'll be, uh, you know, and, and of course, one of the bigger challenge differences with New York from San Francisco or Arizona as well is the weather conditions, which are much more varied. Um, you know, you get, you know, from hot, sunny summer weather to um, very cold and winters and, and heavy rains. Uh, so, so some new challenges for Waymo as they uh, move into the Big Apple. Our, um any of the designs the, for the um, self-driving technology adjusted based on where the vehicles are deployed? I mean, as you noted, New York drivers are kind of well-known as being very aggressive. You know, if you have a, a self-driving car in New York versus, uh, you know, Boulder, Colorado or something, to me, it just it would have to be designed almost to be more aggressive if, because it's just never going to get anywhere in New York City if it's not going to cut in front of people and, and do things like that. So how do you see that playing? Yeah, I mean, mo most of the companies developing this technology are um, they're ad adapting the control strategies for their systems. You know, things like uh, the perception component, the perception system. You know, s taking the sensor data and figuring out what's around you. You know, that's fairly consistent. But it's when you get into the path planning and control portion of it that you have to make some adjustments uh, to. Um, try to behave and, uh, you know, uh, Brian Selesky, the CEO of Argo likes to call it a naturalistic driving behavior. Uh, so basically emulating some of the behaviors, or at least try, at least some of the uh, less dangerous behaviors of human drivers, you know, uh, in a particular environment, you know, I mean, Wayne, uh, Argo, for example, they test in Austin, Texas and Miami and Washington, DC and among several other cities. And they all have very different kinds of behaviors among the drivers. Miami drivers, are like uh, like New York drivers, tend to be a little more aggressive. And I think, you know, Waymo will be making some adjustments in their path planning behavior uh, to compensate for that. So, you know, they will have to try to uh, get into gaps, you know, that they might not otherwise do in a place like Chandler. So that's, that's really interesting. 
So go basically, ahead, go ahead. you're saying you're going to have a bunch of angry robots driving around. You. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get angry and angrier based on where they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the alternative is, you know, if they're if they're too passive, then, you know, the pedestrians and other drivers in New York will get angrier and angrier. So, and nobody so we, need to, we need to find the right balance. Yeah, I, I remember when um, Yandex were, were testing out their vehicles in uh, in Moscow and uh, Tel Aviv and in, in Russia. And when they started to, to trial them out in the States, they had to uh, to, to tone down the, uh, the aggressiveness uh, of the U.S. market. Yeah, and this is one of the interesting things about Mobilize approach. Um, a, a lot of what they do is based on <clears throat> their um, road experience management mapping system, which um, you know they they collect data from existing vehicles on the road. There's more than there's several million vehicles now on the road with Mobileye IQ4 based ADAS systems, and they use the cameras to collect data to build their maps. But they're also collecting data about um, you know, for example, where vehicles stop and, you know, the actual path that they take when they're making turns at intersections. Uh, so, for example, if you've got an intersection where there's limited visibility, the car stops at the line where it's supposed to, but then creeps up uh, a few feet so you can, the driver can actually see if it's clear to go. And they're capturing that sort of data and they're incorporating that into their control strategy. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's a, a potential benefit for uh, for Mobileye in a place like uh, like Manhattan or you know Tel Aviv where they're based, um, and that's going to be the companies like Waymo and and others are going to have to figure out how do they capture that data about you know what is the the naturalistic driving behavior or where where are the places where you you actually you know what are the trajectories you have to take to make these maneuvers in a place like an, uh, like Manhattan. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, join us again in two weeks when we do this one more time. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.